What is up, my guys? Welcome back to the Tech's Lifestyle Podcast, a conversation about tech, content creation, and storytelling. I'm your host, Ethan Biggie, and today we are talking about Apple's latest MacBook Pros and their new chips, along with some thoughts. If you like what you hear, definitely do consider following the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. It really helps out a lot. Thanks a ton, and editor, roll the intro. Once again, Apple displayed incredible production quality, and the event was such a vibe with the music, to the transitions, to just everything in between. Anyway, that wasn't the point of this episode, so let's silence the cinematic fanboy in me and move on to our thoughts on the event. So let's start off with the new chips and the MacBooks, because that's the fun stuff. So Apple surprised basically everybody on planet Earth by launching two chips for the Mac that have surprisingly more difference between them than we thought. So I'm on Pro and I'm on Max are the two chips and initially the naming felt a little bit off since all the leaks referred to it as M1X but then I guess it makes sense that Apple is unifying the naming scheme across their products and you know what? I'm all for it. Anyway, these chips are freaking impressive. Just listen to this. M1 Pro is boasting the same 5 nanometer process node as M1 but it has way more transistors, like 33.7 billion of them. A maximum of 32 gigs of RAM in Apple's unified memory architecture technology, which we will definitely talk more about soon, because it's so cool now. We're getting a maximum of 200 gigabits per second memory bandwidth on the M1 Pro, which is redonkulous. M1 Pro is a 10-core CPU with 8 performance cores and 2 efficiency cores, and has a 16-core GPU alongside. It's equipped with a really, really fast media encoder for H.264 and H.265 encoding along with a ProRes codec accelerator as well. I was a little disappointed to see that Apple didn't give us the number of Thunderbolt controllers on board because they said it's multiple controllers, but they didn't give us the number. But the nerd in me just wants to know the limits of its saturation. M1 Max is the big chungus chip. On Twitter, I called it as Apple's flex chip. Follow me on Twitter, by the way. Because that's essentially all it was. Apple was proving once again that they can stand on their own two feet. We had a few significant changes, like how the memory bandwidth was casually doubled to 400 gigabits per second, along with the maximum RAM also being doubled to 64 gigs. Apple seriously bumped up the M1 Max to a massive 57 billion transistors, which is just unreal. They also equipped it with a 32-core GPU, making it four times faster than M1, and also threw in a two times faster media encoder than M1 Pro. And of course, in classic Apple fashion, we got really, really generic and useless unlabeled graphs, which they used to rant on for a good five to seven minutes. I didn't take it that seriously because they are poised to make Apple look way better than they probably are. And also, when we don't get any information on testing methodologies, it loses a lot of its credibility. Anyway, I'm 100% sure that these chips are crazy performant and more importantly, incredibly efficient for what they output. You remember when I told you that because M1 Pro and M1 Max are SOCs with Unified Memory Architecture or UMAs, 
The reason that is so significant is for two main reasons. One, speeds are in sync because both the CPU and the GPU are accessing the same pools of memory and they don't need to pass through the same data with a slower interface or bus, which is what traditionally happens. Number two, this effectively means that all of the RAM can be allocated as both regular old DRAM for the CPU or video memory for the GPU as well. Simply put, Apple just effectively designed a solution to give a GPU up to 64 gigs of VRAM. Now, obviously this isn't realistic as a CPU would also take up some amount of RAM, but that still leaves an unheard amount of video memory in the notebook world. No wait, actually the most I've seen on a desktop video card is only 48 gigs, haha, <laughs> only, um, with the NVIDIA A6000. So Apple disrupted a lot more of the industry than we thought. Wow, that is crazy. So now it is time for the MacBook Pro. As expected, we got two variants, a 14-inch and a 16-inch variant. Both can be equipped with the M1 Pro and the M1 Max as well, which is great. And both are equipped with some blazing fast SSDs that can reach sequential speeds of up to 7.4 gigabytes per second. That is some of the fastest in the industry. Apple is known for their super fast SSDs, so I guess it makes sense. The best thing that happened to the MacBook Pros this time around are the ports. Listen to this list, it's so glorious. We've got three Thunderbolt ports, an HDMI port, an SD card slot, a headphone jack, and Apple is bringing back MagSafe. That's a lot of ports for an Apple product. I guess Apple just killed all the memes just like that. On a serious note though, I'm so very glad that Apple listened to the professionals who are asking for this for very, so very long. This screams out the fact that Apple designed this, keeping the creative professional in mind first. All of this connectivity opens up so many doors for people to use their Macs. Apple showed a very interesting demonstration of how many displays you can connect to the MacBook and it's quite crazy to say the least. Three 6K Pro display XDRs and a giant TV. That's like so unnecessary, but I'm so here for it. Let's also run over some key design changes that Apple has made and discuss my thoughts as well. First of all, let's get one thing out of the way. Apple, why is there a freaking notch on the MacBook? Like I guess thinner bezels and a unified design language makes sense. But like we have laptops like the XPX 15 with decent webcams and super thin bezels. So it clearly isn't impossible. Anyway, it's just a minor gripe, but to Apple's credit, they did push the top bar completely to be flush with the notch. So that makes it fine. I'm not complaining anymore. Apple removed the touch bar, which I guess is a good decision because even after five years, it didn't have much use for people. Also, so many apps didn't necessarily use it that well or to its maximum potential. We got Touch ID on the keyboard, which is awesome. It was high time that we got biometric authentication on the MacBook Pro. We also still have Apple's trademarked massive force touch trackpad, which I'm a huge fan of. The display is now a mini LED Liquid Retina XDR display with up to 1600 nits of peak brightness. Now, this was an obvious addition to the MacBook Pro this time around because this was their Pro-level notebook. 
it was essential that they support HDR, which the iPhones can record in, but also it being as color accurate as possible, which is where mini LED comes in with the local dimming zones and everything else. One interesting thing is that Apple's display is now their ProMotion display with up to 120Hz refresh rate, but it's one of those variable refresh rate displays, essentially LTPO. Here's the thing. Apple does not promote high refresh rate gaming on these Macs, and for good reason. Mac OS does not support it really, really well. Anyway, I think the only reason for this is that when Apple crams in so much power into a computer and it claims so much about it, giving the customer a much more fluid and responsive feeling experience really takes that user experience to the next level. If I've heard Apple flex so hard with their marketing for these new chips and I end up scrolling through the browser with a really laggy and interlaced looking situation, subconsciously, I might be pissed at Apple. That's just plain fact. So, all in all, this makes sense. We also got a sneak peek at the cooling system and frankly, I have some really interesting thoughts on it. We have the same dual fan config with vents next to the keyboard and behind the hinge. Now, inside we still have the same single heat pipe going over what looks like two vapor chambers. Don't quote me on that. Here's my problem. Apple retained the exact same cooling system for a significantly more efficient chip. It doesn't take a deep thinker to understand that Apple is going to give its own processor the best environment to perform. And if that environment is the same as the one for a significantly hotter chip, Apple most likely purposely sandbagged the previous Intel MacBook Pro to make theirs look miles better. To be clear, Apple has clearly done incredible things with their custom silicon, but sandbagging, that's just sad. Finally, Let's talk about the price tag. These are ridiculously expensive machines. The 14-inch starts at $2,000 and the 16-inch starts at $2,500. I guess we really can't make value comments yet because we have no benchmarks to support any statements we make. So we just keep quiet about that. I have one gripe with Apple's direction though. Apple has supercharged these chips with so much graphics muscle yet they are not pushing gaming on the Mac platform. They're pushing game development, but for some reason they're refusing to promote just gaming. Apple Arcade is the only outlet that we know, and we all know that it 100% doesn't take full advantage of the resources available to it. I do hope that changes soon. I think the most important part that we must realize and appreciate is how Apple, in just a year and a half, replace their entire laptop line with their own silicon. I'm personally very, very excited for the Mac Pro and the Mac Mini after seeing these two chips. Now, doing so much in so little time so well is impressive and all, but remember the trade-offs that came with this transition. They're mostly the same as the ones I addressed when M1 first launched. First, Apple Silicon so far is purely an SoC. There is zero upgradability across the board on all of these Macs. Now there are advantages to this, like significantly better thermal and power efficiency since it's much more contained, a much smaller package making the products more space efficient as well, but it also allows Apple to ensure that everything in their product is of the best quality and is optimized to the very best for the user. But the disadvantages are that once you blow your $2,000 on it and you realize that you underspect it, that is no going back you're 
nothing more you can do, you're stuck with it. Also, if one part of the SOC fails, the entire Mac is bricked. You can't just replace the RAM or the SSD in case of a failure. Essentially, repairability is also extremely close to zero. Now, this is why Apple is known for their extremely reliable components, but that still doesn't guarantee no failures, right? It's tech. Tech fails. I do look forward to seeing a socketed version of Apple Silicon for the Mac Pro. I think it'll be a really interesting change of pace since Apple has poised the Mac Pro to be supremely upgradable. A socket of M1 Max would be the greatest thing ever. But being honest here, that's definitely not happening. Before talking about Intel, let's quickly get AirPods 3 out of the way. New design without any silicon ear tips. They're now sweat and water resistant. New drivers, new force sensor, adaptive EQ from the AirPods Pro is coming to the third gen. MagSafe enable case, and it starts at 179. This is obviously their budget option to just push the number of AirPods out there, but also this is really clever because it encourages the use of Apple Music, which of course we all know is what Apple wants. That's all I have to say. In other news, around 12 hours before the event, we had Intel CEO make a very interesting statement in an interview. He says that Intel hopes to win back Apple with their new products that are superior to theirs. Quoting Mr. Pat himself here, I've got to make sure that our products are better than theirs. Okay, so there are a few things about this that just make this an absolutely ridiculous notion for Intel. Number one, Intel hosted an entire GoPC campaign that was dedicated to nothing but trying to shame Apple and glorify themselves. Does it seem likely, even in the slightest, that Apple would associate themselves with a company that spent millions trying to tarnish their image? I think not. Number two, Apple proved that they are more than capable of doing extraordinarily well in the processor development and manufacturing business. They moved their entire product lineup to custom silic now. Apple is completely independent and making more profit than ever before. Number three. Intel's product is severely outdated with its older process node. It's significantly less efficient, less performant, and has an extremely dicey release roadmap, as we've seen time and time again, which also was the main reason why Apple left Intel. Not to mention, Intel's chips are much more bulky and expensive for Apple to use rather than their own in-house ones. And finally, number four. Even if the unlikely event occurs where Apple's R&D fails and they have to come crawling back to a manufacturer for processors, Intel is not going to be Apple's first choice. Remember, there is a Team Red dominating the space currently. AMD would be Apple's first choice since they too are focused on innovation and a lot of their goals are alike. For example, both presently don't like Intel, both are all about maximum efficiency, both are about using the latest technology for the best performance. And the list goes on. Intel is like the last vendor Apple will go to. Apple once again shook the entire industry, but this time around, I don't think its effect is going to be as massive as M1. Everyone knew the chips were going to be crazy town. M1 showed us that. The only deciding factor was going to be how Apple put them to use. Apple nailed that too. So, well done, Apple. Congratulations. Anyway, that wraps up this episode. Follow the podcast for more. And as always, stay cool and I'll see you next time.